Okay, just by way of announcements this evening, next uh, Monday night on May the 18th, uh, Pastor Dennis Roxer, Duluth Bible Church, is going to be uh, teaching for the uh, Camp Arete uh, virtual Bible class for the summer. Uh, but Monday night, he's going to be the speaker, and he's going to teach on the Faith Rest Walk on the Monday evening uh, Monday evening session. So you can find out about that if you don't know. You can go to the Camp Arete website and get information there. Also, tomorrow, or actually it was today, but on Thursdays every week, you can check into our prep school classes that are online now for the, uh, for the year. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower, flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our new study this evening, we will spend a few moments in prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word of God and to understand its implications and applications for our lives. Scripture teaches that in the church age, the believer uh, walks according to the Spirit or by the Spirit, according to Romans 8 and Galatians 5, but when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. That's a great metaphor for fellowship, which means to engage in a partnership where two or more are engaged in a common goal, achieving a common goal. And so when we sin, that rapport with God, that walk with God is broken, and we are to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and he's faithful and just in his grace to forgive us from our, our, the sins we confess and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to uh, give us the opportunity to be spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to come together to fellowship virtually as well as with a few people here to think about your word, to be encouraged and strengthened by your word, and as always to have your word challenge us. Because as scripture says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And so it is up to your word to correct us, to teach us, to enlighten us, to guide and direct our thinking that we may follow the injunctions of Romans 12:2, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we are, we'll see tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are to take 
every thought captive for Christ. We need to think about our thinking. Help, help us tonight as we think, as we think about our thinking and as we think about your word and the impact it should have on our thinking about our nation and governing and our leaders. And Father, as always, we pray for our leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom, insight, open their eyes to the truth, and we pray that you would give wisdom to those who counsel them, who advise them, and that they would be willing to submit to wise counsel and not to be controlled by arrogance. Father, we pray that our government would follow the dictates of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, that we as believers might live peaceable lives, that we may go about uh, your mission for our lives without the distraction dealing with an uh, overruling government. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this evening we are going to review a series I taught in 2008, updated, revised, enhanced. Uh, the series in 2008 was entitled uh, Decision Making in the Voting Booth. The title for this series now is How Should We Then Vote? How Should We Then Vote? Once again, we are in a presidential election year. This year, along with President and Vice President, we're going to elect new members of Congress, senators and House of Representatives, as well as many local leaders, state representatives, state senators, uh, county officials, county judges. And so it is important for us to think through who these people are, what they believe, what their policies will be, and we need to have a grid. We need to have a framework for evaluating these individuals who want to have such a significant influence on our lives. Since I first taught this topic in 2008, we have seen the political divide in this country become so much more entrenched. There used to be a line, the line grew thicker, began to grow taller, and now there seems to be a, uh, a wall, a, almost a wall of separation. There seem to be those who are so committed to their positions that they are becoming more and more hostile, more and more uh, vindictive, grudge-bearing. Uh, civility is lost whenever we come to many, um, many topics that are political. And as a result of that, more and more people are unwilling to just engage in discussion, in, in uh, learning how to think through the issues. There is a lack of humility all the way around on dealing with these kinds of issues. And what we have witnessed in the last 12 years is, has radically changed the nature of the United States of America, our culture, our society, our political system. We have witnessed a move towards universal health care, something that has always been resisted as being in opposition to the fundamental free market principles laid down in the Constitution. We have witnessed the legitim legitimization of same-sex marriage. We have seen the increasing popularity of socialistic ideas. We have seen an emphasis on something called social justice. We have seen moves just recently because of the COVID crisis. There is now a spending bill 
uh, that's going to come up in the House that uh, has as part of it a guaranteed minimum income uh, for all people. We have seen uh, the election of House members that are extremely vocal in their socialism, a term that was a sure death knell to any candidate up until just a couple of decades ago. We have seen <clears throat> this same group very uh, vocal in their hostility towards Israel and expressing their anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic beliefs. We've also seen the horrible deterioration the last 12 years of race relations, the rise of Black Lives Matter, a movement that is committed to social justice, a, uh, that is also committed to certain values and in internationalism, as well as a commitment to the cause of the so-called Palestinian Arabs. It has caused uh, an increasing, an increasingly dystopian uh, problem in the homeless situation, especially in California. The conflict over globalism versus nationalism has been distorted by the media, distorted by educators. Uh, it, it, you know, so much gets distorted. So we have to have a framework for thinking through these things objectively and uh, calmly. The conflict over globalism and nationalism has been significantly impacted by this COVID crisis. In fact, uh, one article I read in January said the first victim of the pandemic was internationalism. And there's some truth to that because all of a sudden when everybody started spreading the uh, virus, you had the, all the countries in, in the EU uh, pull all of their little guard houses out of storage and reestablish their borders and, not let, and the Swiss wouldn't let the French in. Well, the French still let everybody in, but the Germans wouldn't let anybody in and the Italians wouldn't and borders came up and, and all of those kinds of things. We've witnessed demonstrations for open borders. We've seen continued divisiveness and hostility over the border wall. We've seen misrepresentations about those who believe that immigration ought to be legal versus those who don't think there ought to be any rules or laws whatsoever. Uh, the hostility that now exists between the different sides on the legalization of abortion uh, issue has reached a fever pitch with the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh uh, a couple of years ago and the threat that President Trump may appoint another pro-life justice is uh, scares the daylight out of those on the left. In all of this, we find people polarizing over these issues. We hear of families where there is just cold silence at Thanksgiving or Christmas, where some no longer attend family functions because uh, of the differences in political beliefs. All of that is extremely sad. I know of uh, families that have uh, gone through a horrible tension over the uh, different political beliefs. I know of friends that have quit speaking to one another because of these differences, and some marriages have failed over these differences. We've lost the ability to communicate with one another on these issues. We have backed into our corners and we have taken up our defensive positions and we no longer seem to be able to carry on a rational conversation. 
So what I am trying to do is talk to us about Christianity, what Christians, how Christians should think about the issues uh, and voting. We're not really going to talk too much about individual issues, as you'll see as we go along, because I think the, uh, the, the framework for voting is more foundational. Once you understand the biblical framework, then you understand uh, how you should line up on different issues. But the Bible clearly gives us a framework for understanding what righteous government is and what it is not, and what governance should look like, what good leadership should look like, what kind of policies are necessary to enjoy uh, liberty and freedom in a nation, and where there is a division of responsibility between the state and the individual. I'm teaching this again for a couple of reasons. One is to help those who listen understand better the biblical framework for governing and the governance of a nation. Uh, though many of you have heard me teach through this because you've been uh, under my ministry for many years, there are others who are new. There are some that are young who were in their teens or 20s when I started here, and they've grown up, and like most 20-somethings, you don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about current events, and you don't think a lot about politics or what's going on on the international scene. Sadly, the case is in America, very, very few people even think about or are knowledgeable about foreign affairs. And this is sad. We should all be as knowledgeable as we can be. But when you're in your teens and 20s, you're worried about getting through school. You're worried about getting a job, you get, learning everything you can in your career, and getting established. And so usually it's not until you're in your 30s that you get the time to begin working through some of these, uh, some of these particular issues. Uh, some of you uh, will be engaged in conversation with other Christians or maybe non-Christians, who will find out how you vote and your uh, political beliefs, and they will want to know how you as a Christian could vote the way you do in light of certain obnoxious, socially acceptable, or politically liberal, or politically conservative behavior uh, and beliefs on the part of your candidate. You need to know why you vote the way you do, not just because that's the way your parents voted or that's because your favorite professor in college thought you should vote, but you should think through the issues from yourself. And if you are a Christian, then I believe you need to think about them from the Bible. The Bible provides our framework for understanding every single issue in life. That is what we believe, that God has revealed himself to us and that we, if we are left to our own with, to follow our sin nature, will run towards arrogance and licentiousness and divisiveness and all sorts of problems. But that which brings things under control and brings order out of chaos is the word of God. It is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. Second reason is that there are those who aren't partisan. Uh, they're too busy with life, and they don't pay attention to things. They hear the news. They hear everybody yelling at each other, and it just turns them off, and so they really don't understand these, these issues. And I remember when I was in college, 
uh, hearing a lot of debates, and that was during the, at least at the beginning of college, it was during the era of the Vietnam War, and there was a tremendous amount of divisiveness, and you heard all kinds of arguments about this thing and that thing, and you have to think through and understand uh, what people are saying and why. Third reason is that we're going to spend some time talking about our founding fathers. It is sad but true that most Americans know very little, if anything, about the founding of this nation. The older you are, the more you may know, but the younger you are, the less you know, and what you know is probably wrong. There's just a tremendous amount of, of propagandizing with the founding fathers. And it takes, it's taken me, for example, years of study and reading and reading original sources as well as good researchers to come to understand uh, what the founding fathers and the founding generation believed. I remember when I was in university, I majored in history and took mostly courses in European history, but some in American history, uh, courses in the Civil War era, courses in World War I, World War II, things of that nature where we focused a lot upon the politics of what was going on and the shifting scene in the 20th century. Uh, my, my master's work in theology had a certain amount of church history as part of it, and I went on and did majored in the history of Christianity in my doctoral work. When I studied in University of St. Thomas here for my master's in philosophy, I spent most of my time studying the history of ideas and how those ideas impacted and shaped the modern world. It was primarily courses that dealt with uh, medieval philosophy, but we went into the Enlightenment and all the way up into the period of modern philosophy uh, following Immanuel Kant. So all of that gave me a tremendous uh, breadth of background to think through these issues. And since I last taught this, I've probably read uh, 60 or 70 books, and I don't know how many articles and theses and dissertations all related to the topics that are important for understanding how you ha develop a biblical worldview that will inform uh, your, your voting. So... One of the things that happened over the course of my life is when I was in university and when I was later in the master's program at Dallas Seminary, which is a conservative school, and even up through my doctoral work, the primary, almost dominating view of history, of the history of the American War for Independence, was that the founding fathers had a few Christians in the mix, but most of them were primarily influenced by the Enlightenment. There were many of them were deists or close to deists, and so they did not ha there was not an impact of Christianity or the Bible per se on the founding of this country. That began to change in the late 80s and early 90s in, in various realms. There were some who were uh, more popular historians who are putting out some good material but not necessarily well documented. And then I've discovered just in the last uh, six or seven years that there's a whole generation of good, solid scholars, one of whom is 
uh, one of the editors of this book I just happened to have left here last week called The Forgotten Founders on Religion and Public Life, edited by Daniel uh, Driesbach and Mark David Hall. Uh, Daniel Driesbach, for example, is professor in the School of Public Affairs at the American University. Mark David Hall is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Political Science at George Fox University. So these are men who have advanced scholarly degrees. Uh, Driesbach was, I get these confused, he was either a Fulbright scholar or something of that nature. He studied at Oxford, has his uh, doctorate from there. So these are men who are well-schooled at secular universities, secular schools, that have done phenomenal research in establishing the level of significance that Christianity played in the founding of this nation. And that is, you know, I have gone back, I've read so much, I've, you know, I was taught one view, I always had some skepticism about it, didn't always understand all of the issues through the education process, and then began to have to just get down and deal with the original sources. So all of that's important because it impacts why we have the kind of government that we have. And because it is the kind of government that we have that has produced the greatness of this nation. For example, the freedom and liberty that we have in this country has been put on display in just the last few months as suddenly this new virus has come out of nowhere. And there are uh, dozens and dozens of laboratories that are not government controlled, like in many countries, and they are pursuing, because of free market, if they are the first ones to get the vaccine, they're going to make a lot of money. And they're going to make a lot of money not just for themselves, but for their investors. And that is part of free market. It provides motivation and it provides direction. And so we're going to see perhaps a treatment or hopefully a vaccine Within a year and a half, I think there's a lot of overstatement and hyperbole, but very, very quickly because so many, I'm hearing reports out of Israel that they think there's a research team there that thinks that they have a, they have a vaccine or cure. And so all of this comes from a free market system based on individuals responsibly pursuing these goals of, of uh, virtue and righteousness on their own for the good of mankind and for the betterment of society. And, it, you know, they may become wealthy off of it. But, that it, it, you know, it's a caricature, a false caricature, to say that's their motivation is, is simply, uh, simply money. And so we have to think about all of these things and investigate them and study them. Not everybody has the time or the opportunity to do that. But we need to understand where we came from in our nation and the kind of government that was envisioned. For if we do not continue that, we will change this nation into something that will never produce what it did. Now, that doesn't mean everything that was done in the history of the United States was good or right or should be, uh, should be overlooked. There, we live in a fallen world. That's a, something we'll be studying because... In the rise of the many of these far-left movements today, socialism, communism, many of the other spin-offs that we see in our culture, 
they're operating on an ideology that make, believes that you can make the economy perfect, perfect, you can make politics perfect, you can improve and perfect society, and that runs counter to everything that the founders I mentioned. You can't do that. It's just impossible, but we'll come to that. So I want to begin by looking at three verses to lay sort of a biblical foundation. Proverbs 14.35 says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 29.2 states, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Now, when we look at these two verses, we have to understand what the scripture means by the term righteous or righteousness. I have the word up on the screen. It's tzedakah which is the word that means both righteous or righteousness, and it means justice. They're two sides of the same coin. Righteousness is the standard that justice applies. Righteousness is a standard that justice applies. And when you look at the meaning of this particular word, it has the and I'm going to quote here from Norman Snaith, who wrote a classic work in the early 60s on Hebrew word studies called Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament. I don't believe he was a conservative Christian. He says, The original significance of the root tzedek means to be straight or to make straight. And he adds to that, that it presents a norm or a standard. And so this became a word that referred to the absolute moral standard of God. And it also refers to the application of that standard. So it's a a loaded word. So when we look at Proverbs 14.34 and it says, Tzedakah exalts a nation, what it is saying is both having an absolute standard of righteousness And applying that standard of righteousness exalts a nation. It lifts a nation up. It empowers and strengthens a nation. But on the other hand, sin is a disgrace to any people. So there's a clear contrast between righteousness and sin. So from that, we see that the Bible clearly shows that there are absolute standards that exist beyond space and time that, as we'll see, exist in the character of God, and that is the benchmark for evaluating all norms and standards. The second verse, Proverbs 29.2, says, when the righteous rule, that is, when you have righteous rulers, that is, rulers that rule according to a righteous standard, an absolute standard, a universal standard, and they apply that standard justly, the people rejoice. Now, the Proverbs are not saying this is done perfectly. They're not saying that there's any perfect uh, government on earth. There never has been and never will be until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom where he is the king and the ultimate ruler, and that will be, the Scripture says, a rule of righteousness. But until then, we're always going to have rulers and governments that are corrupted by sin, and that is why the founding fathers understood that there had to be checks and balances in the government in order to prevent the abuse 
of power. That, that if you have an, a utopic view of the perfectibility of man, not only is that not biblical, but that will lead to self-destruction because that is based on a false view of God's creation and a false view of reality. So <clears throat> a couple of things when we look at these verses. We see that when a, when a nation has a righteous standard, the nation is lifted up and the people rejoice. But the question that we should be asking ourselves is how do we discover, how do we implement that righteous standard? Where does it come from? Does it come as a result of a majority vote? Does it come as a result of a consensus? Does it come as a result of being, uh, of being imposed from the top, from either an elite group of leaders or imposed by some sort of aristocracy or... A powerful oligarchy? Is that the source of the standard? Or does the standard come from outside of creation? A standard that applies to every human being, every culture, every nation, a standard that comes because it is grounded in God. So the question is, where does that righteous standard derive? When you hear somebody say, oh, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm going to vote for Mitt Romney. I'm going to vote for Barack Obama. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or whomever. And you say, well, that's wrong. Where do you get, where, where do you get the value for right and wrong? Where does that derive? That's an important question we have to, to answer. Some say that, well, there are no absolute standards. There are no universal standards. It's just all relative. Well, how far does that relativism uh, go? Does it go all the way down to every person? Well, that's what happened in Israel during the period of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it led to absolute chaos and the breakdown of society. And for 400 years, the Israelites were under the dominion of every oppressing power and, and neighbor. So we see that righteousness is contrasted with sin, and so there are these absolute dividing lines. Second thing we see here is that when rulers conform to this standard, this just isn't anybody's standard. In the Bible, this standard is the character of God. Then the people are, are when, when, then the people are happy. And they're happy for a lot of reasons. And when they don't conform to this standard, then the people are going to be miserable. They're going to be shamed, and they're going to be disgraced. And then the third verse I want to look at at the beginning is in Psalm 11, verse 3 where the psalmist writes, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a distinctive word translated foundation, and it, should, it indicates that which is the, the base on which everything else is built. What is the base on which governing and governance are to be based? That's what we need to ask. What is that base? What is that foundation? And the question that is asked here expects a, ne a very negative answer. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's no hope. There's no certainty. There's no future if the foundations are, are destroyed. And so we see by looking at the, all three of these verses that these foundations are related to righteousness. 
When the foundations are righteous and just, the people are hopeful and joyful, stable. And when the foundations crumble, no one is happy except the powerful who impose their rule on the people. And so that teaches us that we have to understand what these foundations are and do we look into nature for these foundations? Do we look to uh, other countries? Do we develop them out of what we think is best? Or are there external standards, external things that God reveals to us that he's built into his creation that if they're followed, then there will be stability, there will be prosperity, there will be security, there will be happiness. But if they're not followed, then just the opposite. And so this is what we are going to be looking at as we go through this series. We've often heard about the ancient curse, wishing somebody the fate of living in interesting times. We certainly live in interesting times. Interesting times is usually a term that refers to times of instability, times of uncertainty, times of insecurity, and we've seen that. We've seen that increasing over the last two or three decades, I believe. But we see it even more during this lockdown, during the pandemic for the coronavirus. And so we have to ask this question, how are we going to deal with all of this uncertainty? Human beings don't like uncertainty. We, we, we want something to give us that security and that stability. But everything within the created world is eventually going to, to crumble. We can't find happiness and meaning on something that always changes. We have to look for something that has eternal immutability. Because if things are always changing, then this is not a good thing, and it will never provide the kind of stability necessary for a solid, uh, for a solid growth in a nation or in a civilization. We live in these kinds of interesting times, and they get more interesting every year, and this year we have another presidential election. And I don't think that we can point out any election in our lifetimes or what we've read in history books that are, that's as loaded with implications and consequences as this election. There are forces at work in this country that seek to further destroy the foundations on which this nation was founded. And it is those, those foundations that established uh, the opportunity. They didn't guarantee it, but the opportunity to have stability, the opportunity to increase in liberty and increase in prosperity. Sure, uh, this isn't a perfect country. It doesn't have a perfect history. There have been numerous problems but the system, the framework that was given to us by our founders is a framework that allowed us to work within that in order to fix, in order to write, in order to correct any uh, evils and any error that was already there. We live in a time when we've just come out of a period when we had a presidential candidate that promised hope and change. He never defined what hope and change were unless you went back and you read his books. But a lot of people wanted it because they didn't quite like the way things had been and they thought, well, we need to change. But nobody really defined what that change would. Nobody asked, is this change going to be a good thing or, or not? Of what does this change consist? 
What's the motivation for the change? Is this change consistent with who we are as a nation? And who we are as a nation is defined by our Constitution and by the Bill of Rights. Or is this change going to change us into something different from what we have been? Change, for change's sake, is never good. Change is not always good, and often change can be bad. In Proverbs 24:21, we read, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. Bible-believing Christian must address the issues that are raised in our culture, in, an, in our society for a number of reasons, and we'll address that as we go along, is why should Christians vote? Within the conservative evangelical tradition, there have been many who have argued that Christians should not be involved in any elections, they should not be involved in politics, they should not be involved in anything whatsoever that is tainted by, uh, by politics. Uh, John Nelson Darby, who was a founder uh, and, and the first person to systematize dispensational theology, believed that. Uh, he believed it was evil for Christians to get involved in anything related to government. So we have to address those issues, and we will as we go along. Whenever we, as I pointed out a minute ago, when we talk about terms like righteousness and justice, we hear a lot about justice, but usually it's a compound word, social justice. And uh, when, we, when we look at this concept, we need to think about what is that standard? Where does that standard derive? We, as I pointed out, whenever we get involved in any kind of debates, then we we're often find people who make decisions that are evaluated as either good or bad. Well, how can you vote for so-and-so? They're evil, they're wicked, they're bad. How can we vote for that policy or this policy? Even today you hear people who are saying uh, of the president, well, if you open things up, people will die. Well, the reality is people die every day. People are going to die. There are a lot of people who die because we're closed down. They've died because they're starving. They died because they lost their job and their livelihood. They died because they've had heart attacks or strokes uh, or some other significant uh, medical emergency, and they haven't been able to get attention because everybody's attention is on those who, are, who have the, the virus. I read an article a couple of weeks ago that said twice as many people in England have died of non COVID-related illnesses. They've had heart attacks. They haven't been able to get an ambulance or get to the hospital. They've had strokes. They've had cancer come up. By the time they could finally be looked at, it was it was too late, and uh, they weren't going to. It was now non or uh, untreatable. So there, you don't hear about this in the media, but there are many many people who die because of the lockdown and because of the quarantine. So we have to decide, what are we going to do? And these are some of the difficult decisions uh, that, that come up. As we look at these particular issues, we recognize that there are a tremendous amount of issues that people are going to uh, they're, they're, they're going to polarize over. We think of issues such as uh, abortion, gun control, 
death penalty, national security, border control, how do you handle the coronavirus, uh, trade, terrorism, war, uh, not to mention uh, abortion. And what's interesting is when these are brought up, people have locked down in their views and they just come out fighting. And so we argue about these issues, but the reality is that's not what we should be discussing. There are underlying issues that we should be talking about. And so I want to introduce this slide to you in this diagram at this point. This is a diagram of an iceberg. Iceberg, typically about 10 or 15% of the iceberg is above water and visible. You see it. You can identify that. But you can't really see what's below the surface. And about 80, 90% of an iceberg is below the surface. Now, this iceberg is going to be a metaphor for our thinking, for how we think and what we think about. And so the under-the-surface part of the iceberg is the foundation for our thinking. When we talk about the psalm, Psalm 11.3, that when the foundations crumble, this is what we're talking about. What are the foundations for our beliefs? The first and lowest level has to do with our perception of reality. This is known in philosophy as metaphysics. You can just think of it as ultimate reality. It is our thinking about what is there that ultimately exists that has existed beyond uh, our, our time frame. Some people think it's matter. Some people think it's energy. Some people think it's some pantheistic spirit, something of that nature, or it's a, for Christians, it's a personal, infinite God. This is metaphysics. That's the foundation for all thought. Once you get that down, and most people don't ever think about these things. They're not educated. They don't work them through, but this is, this is uh, understood and accepted it by almost everybody. This is a foundation for thought. First of all, everything derives from your view of ultimate reality. You need to think about that. Second, there is epistemology. That's just a uh, scholarly word for knowledge. How do you know that? Somebody says that they, they make the claim that nationalism is evil. Well, how do you know that? What's your evidence? Don't just tell me it's evil. Why do you think that having nations and having borders is evil? What is your evidence? Where did the idea of nations and borders derive? How do you know that it is evil? What do you mean by evil? Things of that nature. So how do you know truth? How do you know what you know? That's the study of epistemology. Once you understand your knowledge, your view of knowledge, where it comes from and what it means, then from that you develop your views of ethics, your views of right and wrong. So when you make certain claims, oh, like I said, nationalism is wrong. Well, you've made an ethical judgment. But see, we don't talk about the ethics. We don't talk about, well, where did you get that idea of right and wrong? How do you know what right is? How do you know what wrong is? To what standard are you referring? Where did that standard derive? Uh, is, as I pointed out earlier, is it uh, derived from consensus? It's derived from your neighbors and your friends and your family? Is it derived... 
uh, from a creator who created all things, and he himself is the absolute standard. And then you get to the fourth story in our knowledge, and that is the political, national, or even individual decisions. Every decision we make in life is predicated upon our view of ultimate reality, our view of knowledge, our view of right and wrong, and then it's based upon that. Now what happens is that uh, this is the logical sequence as I've developed it. Most of us haven't formed it that way. Most of us is just sort of a willy-nilly sort of process, and we don't really know. A lot of people say, well, how do you know what you know? Well, then they're stumped. What's your ultimate authority for knowing truth? Well, I just think everybody, it's just obvious to me. Well, it's not obvious to everybody, so how, how do you prove it? How do you demonstrate it? When we come into the area of pressures of life and difficulty, we go from the top down. We start having to think about, oh, I've got this decision, but is it right? Where does it come from? What's the authority? How, what does God have to say about it? Or if there's no God, how do I, how do I know? So this area at the top, political, national, individual decisions, that's where we talk, that's where we argue. These areas, epistemology, metaphysics, or metaphysics, epistemology, and then ethics, those are the real issues. Those are usually ignored, but that's where the discussion needs to take place. And as Christians especially, what has God said? What has God taught or revealed in his word in relation to governing, in relation to governance, in relation to nations, in relationship to the kind kind of government a nation should have in order to be prosperous or, or successful. We can't act as if somehow, wow, this just happened by chance. But that's what a lot of people think. This is just something that came along socially. People thought it worked well, so we're just sort of uh, figuring it out as we go along. But if you're a Christian, if you believe the Bible is true to, in any way, shape, or form, then what the Bible teaches is that God gives us guidance and instruction in all of these areas, and so we need to, uh, we need to figure that out. I want to go back to a, uh, a previous uh, slide or statement that I wanted to, wanted to uh, comment on. What we have is a situation where most people don't ever talk about what's below that waterline. Oh, we get into that, we start talking about God. Oh, we're just going to have more arguments. We're going to have more difficulty. We're, we're, we're never going to get anywhere. And that's a sad reality. In his book on the, called The Disenchantment of Secular Discourse, uh, Stephen Smith has written this. Now, what he's talking about is that it, talking about secular topics is, has become a frustrating uh, event. We can't have conversations with people about things for many different reasons. And so you're just disenchanted because anytime you talk about anything significant, it, people end up yelling and fighting and arguing with each other. And what I find most of the time is that the people who are the most virulent and the most hostile and everything else haven't ever really thought things through. They think they have. They're satisfied with what they've done, but they haven't spent 30 years investigating, reading, studying, and developing uh, their ideas. Now, some of them have, and they have rejected God as the foundation of thought. But if you're a believer, you can't reject God as the foundation of thought. 
But Stephen Smith makes this comment. He says, in contemporary political liberalism, in stark contrast, reasonableness denotes a willingness not to pursue or invoke for vital public purposes what one believes to be the ultimate truth. What he is saying is that, that, that what happens out there in the marketplace of ideas is we're not going to talk about God or we're not going to talk about how we know things, whether they're true or not. We're not going to talk about right or wrong because, you know, that just leads to a lot of fighting and everything. So we need to ignore that. And and he, he quotes... Uh, he quotes from a couple of people. He quotes from a political philosopher named John Rawls and others who basically teach that that these underlying issues may be vital, but then they say we need to avoid all ethical, epistemological, and metaphysical discussions because these are too threatening to people. But that's where life is. I remember being taught as a young man uh, and this really had its roots in 19th century culture, but that when you were out talking and you were out in social conversation, you never talked about your children. You never talked about money. You never talked about the help. What's left? You talked about religion and politics. Now today, just the opposite all people will talk about are their kids or all they'll talk about are money problems or very superficial things, sports, but they don't ever talk about things that really matter, that really change the direction of people's lives or the direction of countries. And that's what Stephen Smith is pointing out. He says uh, the, the problem is that there's uh, this, this rejection of the idea of talking about uh, these, these things is a willingness based on the judgment that reason will not lead to convergence. We can't have a rational conversation and come together. And he says, but but what will happen if we talk about these things? It will lead, it will subvert a civic peace that can be maintained only if people agree not to make important public decisions on the basis of arguing about what is ultimately true. But you can't make a legitimate public decision unless you have wrestled with what's ultimately true and what ultimate reality is all about. When you reject that, what you're left with is what I alluded to earlier, is what we have in in Judges 17.6 and 21.25. The verse is repeated two times in the book of Judges. describes the darkest period in Israel's history. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No king in Israel is a double entendre because God was the king in this period. It was a theocracy. God was the king. There was no human king. But there was, not only are they saying they, people ignored God and they ignored and they had no human king. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Moral relativism. And what we see in the book of Judges is that relativism is its own tyrant. It is a tyrant to people because if you don't know what right is, you don't know that really know if anything anything is right the way we know what right is is because we have to look at god psalm 145:17 says yahweh the lord is righteous in all his ways gracious in all of his works 
So we have to have an external standard. If you're going to measure something in your house, if you are a carpenter, if you're a machinist, if you're an architect, there are, there's an external standard for all measurements. And it is handled by the Bureau of Weights and Measures. And so there's always this universal external standard by which all rulers, all scales, everything is measured. And so the same is true in our life, is we have to have an external standard by which we can evaluate all other values and decisions. Deuteronomy 32.4 states, A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. This needs to be our presupposition. When we come to the scripture, this is God's word revealed to us, and he is a righteous and just God. And so that needs to be what forms our definition of what righteousness and justice uh, actually is. Now, when we look at our let me look at our iceberg, and we look at our four levels: ultimate reality, knowledge, ethics, what's right or wrong, and our individual political decisions. When we, when we look at those things, that is what we talk about when we develop a worldview. Worldview is how a person looks at all the things in life and puts them together to explain for himself what the purpose of life is all about. And even though you may not have thought about it uh, a lot, you may have not thought about it very much. Everybody has assumed something in terms of ultimate reality. Everybody has some sense of, of, is there one truth, many truths, what's out there? Uh, they all have some sense of what is right and wrong, because no matter who you talk to, no matter where they fall on the scale, they all will eventually see something and say, that's wrong. That indicates that they have a belief that there's some absolute just by the way they talk. And so this develops into what is called uh, a world a, a world view. And so I, a couple of weeks ago, this I ran across this. I want to talk about it just briefly. This was a survey that was done by Arizona Christian University in conjunction with uh, the Barna Institute. Now, if you're not familiar with George Barna, George Barna is a Christian, runs a, the Barna Group, which is a Christian polling organization, been around for 40 years, and is quite well respected uh, across the board, okay? They do fantastic work, but they clearly are coming from an evangelical, uh, conservative Christian uh, viewpoint. And so between Arizona Christian University and Barna, they conducted a survey that they have entitled the American Worldview Inventory uh, 2020. Now, Barna has previously, in 2009, and I think about uh, much, much earlier, maybe 2006, conducted this same worldview analysis. What they came up with uh, this time was that only one-fifth, 20%, or 21% actually in the study, only one-fifth of those attending evangelical Protestant churches have a biblical worldview. Now, what does he mean by biblical worldview? Well, he states it 
on his website in relation to the 2009 survey. He says, number one, a biblical worldview is based on, number one, believing that absolute moral truth exists. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles that it teaches. Now, he doesn't get into inerrancy or infallibility or things of that nature, which I think is good because he's dealing with a broader thing. In his, He's done another study where he talks about identifying who's an evangelical and who's not, and he has about nine different points, and in there he, he, he talks about inerrancy and infallibility. But here he's just talking about general biblical worldview. He says the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Third, that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. Fourth, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Uh, fifth, uh, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And sixth, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world uh, who still uh, rules the universe, r- rules his creation. Left that bottom part out. Still rules the creation. So that's his concept of a worldview which is fairly solid and consistent with other definitions. So he says only one-fifth, only 20% of those who attend evangelical Protestant churches have a biblical worldview as compared to one-sixth. Okay, one-sixth is 16% of those attending charismatic or Pentecostal churches. Only 21% of evangelical Protestant church attendees and only 16% of Pentecostal attendees have a biblical worldview. This study finds even smaller proportions in mainline Protestant or Catholic churches. Mainline Protestant, 8%, only 8% have a biblical worldview, or Catholic, only 1% have a biblical worldview. He then identifies the number of American adults holding a biblical worldview has been cut in half over the past 25 years. So in 2009, it was cut by a quarter from 25 years ago. So 25 years ago was 1995. So from 95 to 2009, it cut by a quarter, and that was a period of 14 years. And the last 11 years, it's cut, cut by another quarter. So it's rapidly deteriorating. He says, regarding the young, youngest adult generation and that is those from 18 to 29 years of age, only 2% possess a biblical worldview. Only 2%. That, I think that reflects poorly and accurately on the lack of biblical teaching in American pulpits. There's no longer a belief in God, and that's something that we're going to see. That is an extremely important metric that we have to pay attention to. Now, there's another book that I have with me that I recommend to people. I've got the third edition here. I think I loaned John or somebody my most recent edition. I've had almost all of them. I'm not sure how many there are now. This is a little older one, written by James Sire called The Universe Next Door. And this is really good if you know of a college kid or someone late teens or early 20s that needs to think through these issues. The chapters relate to Christian theism in the uh, second chapter, deism in the third chapter, the silence of finite spaces or naturalism in the fourth chapter, nihilism 
in the fifth chapter, beyond nihilism, which is existentialism in the sixth chapter, um, Eastern pantheistic monism in the seventh chapter, the new age in the eighth chapter, postmodernism in the ninth chapter. Uh, so he does a very good job. I first read the first edition probably when I was about 24 years old, 23 years old, something like that. And it's well done. It's very even, very scholarly, and very, very in, informative. When he comes to talking about a what he calls the theistic or Christian worldview, now I would argue that there's a theistic Judeo-Christian worldview which is broader than this. But he's defining this as a Christian worldview. A Christian believes that God is infinite and personal, triune, he puts the Trinity in there, triune, transcendent, and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. He has, you know, goes on and has quite a, uh, a couple of pages of explanation of each one of those ideas. God is infinite, he has no boundaries, and God is, trans- is personal. He is intimate with every human being that he can. He's triune, he exists in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is transcendent, that is, he is beyond all things, transcends all of his creation, and imminent, he is present to every aspect of his creation, also known as omnipresence. He is omniscient, he knows all the knowable, he is sovereign, he rules over his creation, and he is good, he is righteous and just. Second, God created the cosmos ex nihilo. God created the cosmos out of nothing to operate with a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. That's Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 through 19. I would go there, but for time's sake, I won't do that. Uh, Third, human beings are created in the image of God and thus possess personality self-transcendence, intelligence, morality, gregariousness, and creativity. That's vital. That's what makes humans humans. This is what separates the biblical view of man from the Darwinistic or evolutionary view of man. In the Darwinistic evolutionary view of man, we're just uh, a a product of an accidental electrical discharge on protoplasm, that that we're just another cog in the machinery of, of... of evolution. But in Christianity, every human being has value. Every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Every human being is significant and needs to be valued. Fourth, even though they're created, fourth, human beings can know both the world around them and God himself. See, we've gone from metaphysics now to talking about epistemology. Knowledge. Human beings can know both the world around them and God himself because God has built into them the capacity to do so. God, some people say, well, I just can't understand God. Well, no, you can't. You, you perfectly can because God created you with the receptors to understand him. Uh, he didn't create a radio that couldn't receive his transmission, okay, to put it in a, uh, a little different illustration. So God created every one of us so that we could understand his transmissions. We don't want to because of sin. That's the problem. So he built into each one of us the capacity to understand him because he takes an active role in communicating with him. Jesus Christ in the beginning was the word, the communication. 
Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the, of the Father. Fifth, human beings were created good, not goo, created good, but through the fall, the image of God became effaced. It's not destroyed. It's just corrupted. It's effaced, though not so ruined as not to be capable of restoration. Through the work of Christ, God redeemed humanity and began the process of restoring people to goodness, though any given person may choose to reject that redemption. Sixth, for each person's death is either the gate to life with God and his people or the gate to eternal separation from the only thing that will ultimately fulfill human aspirations. In other words, you either die and go to be with the Lord in heaven or you don't. You're under eternal condemnation. Seventh, ethics is transcendent. That is, values are eternal and distinct from God's creation based on his character as a good and holy and loving God. And then last, and this is important, that history is linear, a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes for humanity. So this is uh, very important for understanding any worldview. Now, I'm going to jump to this slide, the last two slides here, uh, for a Judeo-Christian worldview. The founding fathers had what I call Judeo-Christian worldview. They would have just called it a Christian worldview because there were only about 4,000 Jews in the colonies at that time. So their presence really wasn't being felt a whole lot. So we had a homogenous society. 85% of Americans in 1776 were brought up and educated within a Calvinistic belief system. So this idea that they are somehow all divided in different views, whether it was Presbyterian, Congregation, or Baptist, uh, they all grew up in a Calvinistic framework. And not only that, but in the 40 years prior to that, from the 1730s on, there was a massive, massive Scots-Irish uh, uh, Scots immigration. And they were all Presbyterian. And they brought those ideas with them. So Judeo-Christian worldview, God is the creator of all things and created human beings in his image and likeness, giving them value and purpose. Every human being is, no human being is an accident. Every human being is purposefully created by God. Second, the Bible is God's revelation to man and is completely accurate in all that it reveals to man, teaching them how to live wisely in God's creation that has been marred by sin. Third, sin has corrupted the human race and God's creation. Fourth, God has given principles and laws for the right conduct of the human race because as their creator, only he can do this. What we'll discover is the founding fathers uh, refer to the scripture a lot. A lot of people say, well, he talked about the Bible a lot. About 70% of it has to do with Old Testament. That's why it has to be described as a Judeo-Christian worldview. Most of their citations, references, allusions relate to Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus, passages of the law, some passages in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they understood that God was the source of standards. God's given principles and laws for the right conduct of the human race because as their creator, 
Only he can do this. And fifth, God continues to oversee and direct his creation toward his perfect end. That would be a more generic Judeo-Christian worldview. Because I think that in all of this discussion, you'll read all kinds of books. Was the United States founded as a Christian nation? Uh, is, uh, was it founded under Christian influence? That word has to be clearly defined. I have argued for years, it doesn't matter whether Jefferson Davis, I mean Jefferson Davis, whether Thomas Jefferson or whether James Madison or George Washington or any of them personally believed Jesus Christ was their Savior. Doesn't matter what their personal doctrinal beliefs were because some of them were not quite orthodox Christians. It may surprise you, but you know the standard view for years was they were mostly all deists and influenced by the Enlightenment thinkers, but only one was clearly a deist, and that was, uh, um, uh, what was his name, Green Mountain Boys, Ethan, uh, Ethan Allen. Uh, he was a clear deist, but none of the others were. They might have some things that sounded like it, but we'll talk about that as we go along. They were all, 85% of Americans came out of a Calvinistic tradition, whether it was Anglican or Scots Presbyterian or Congregationalist or whatever. And so they had a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so what they wrote, what they produced, is the product of that Judeo-Christian worldview. So we have to understand, what in the world does the Bible teach about governance and governing so that we can understand that framework to apply that to whatever the issues are that may uh, come up in our lives. So we'll continue this next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to focus upon uh, understanding your word uh, correctly and applying that to our lives and understanding the implications of these uh, events that you have recorded for us that we may learn what a good, wise government looks like. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.